This is episode 71 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2012 Annual Enrichment Conference, Mission of Family on the Move. This is session two, Tuesday morning. This morning, first we just asked Rick McKinley to come and share about preaching the gospel to ourselves. So Rick, would you come and and, uh, share with us? Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Um, It's fun to come here and look out at so many relationships that uh, have been in my life for several years. My uh, wife was raised at Caldwell First Baptist, and so to come and be with Dick Shaw and Marilyn, and uh, Dick performed our wedding. been uh, friends running with Mark for a long time, and then I was in LeGrand, uh, First Baptist, a little different than Portland, um, but a whole lot, and uh, served with Wayne Pickens, and we did, uh, I was at a point in my life where I was wondering about church planting, and I remember telling that to Wayne, he had just gotten there, and uh, he said, why don't you try something here? And so we started a Saturday night service, and, uh, and it, did, it did well. But what struck me about that experience is the only reason that it worked was because of Wayne's character and allowing room for the next generation to, to start experiencing and living into their gifting. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget one of the kickoff Sunday mo- Sunday, Saturday nights right there in the beginning of the fall. So it's sort of kickoff Sunday, everything's starting mid-September. And I preach at the Saturday night service. He would preach in the morning. He said, you have to preach that message tomorrow morning. And I remember uh, thinking, wow. He, he just gave up his pulpit, gave all that up. I don't even remember what I said. And it wasn't that good. But um, <laughs> maybe he just didn't prepare anything. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> No, but the reality was, um, you know, I, I'm grateful for you for making room uh, for me, and and I hope for all of us we make room for the next generation to figure out what God's calling them to do in the long run, and it can't work if we don't preach the gospel to ourselves and find our identity in Christ and not uh, controlling the next generation and making sure that they don't uh, disrupt our little kingdoms, right? Today I want to talk about um, preaching the gospel to yourself, and I want to do it out of 2 Samuel 6, so if you have a Bible you can turn with me there. 2 Samuel 6 is where God kills Uzzah, which has always been a perplexing text for me, Uh, and after I've gotten to understand it more, I'm really glad that God killed Uzzah. (laughs) And so I want to read the beginning of this for you. David, just a little context, David is now at the center of this whole thing in Jerusalem. He had been on the run for several years, you know that story well, but now he's in his uh, late 30s, he has been uh, brought in to, to be king, and what he wants more than anything is for God to be at the center of his kingdom. And so what he desires is the ark would be brought back. And so it says in verse 1, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. So uh, this, is a, this is a small city that he's taking to get the ark. And he says, 
he and all his men went to Baloth in Judah to bring up there from there the ark of God which is called by the name the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark and they set the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it in from the house of Abinadab which is on the hill Uzzah and Ohio sons of Abinadab were guiding the new cart with the ark on it and Ohio was walking in front of it and David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day the place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. This is, this is a major failure. Th this is cutting the ribbon on your new church building and having lightning strike you dead. Right? And everyone go, wow, that was a bummer. We, we raised a lot of money, we built a building, and God killed the pastor. <laughs> and it's exactly what it is. 30,000 people came out to get this thing. David is throwing the biggest party he can. The worship is going off, and God kills Uzzah. And it turns in from a worship celebration to a funeral. Uzzah is a priest. He, he is familiar with the ark. But there's, there's clues in the text what went wrong. And I want us to look at those. Uh, it, it starts by saying that they put the ark on a brand new cart. They, they went and found the, the latest in Philistine technology. And, and they decided that this would be the way that they could more efficiently and more effectively bring God back into Jerusalem, put God in his proper place. And, and now you know the story, how you're supposed to carry it, right, with poles and Levites, and there's, just, there's a way to do this gospel work. But for some reason, sufficiency, effectiveness, it's about a 30-mile journey, Let's just get there. Let's just get it done. There's a better way to do it. We know what God said. We know what the Word says. But times change. And we need to change our ways. So, he does it. The, the oxen stumble a little bit. And he just reaches out. It's, a, it, 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 it's just a natural reaction. You're going to go help God out. God's going to trip. God would embarrass himself. He'd be spilled out all over the floor here. So, so you just naturally, you grab him, help him out. But that natural impulse to save God betrays something that had gone drastically wrong in Uzzah's heart. Now, the ark... The ark has the Ten Commandments in it. It has a jar of manna in it. It has Aaron's budded staff in it. It has all these sacred uh, symbols that point to a living God in action. 
a God who parts the Red Sea, who radically saves out of Egypt, a God who covenants with his people, who writes his law on their hearts and on these tablets. But for Uzzah, those no longer represented a living, active, dynamic God. They're just religious artifacts. They point to historical lessons. A God who sometime long ago did these kind of things, but he doesn't do them anymore. He literally has God in a box. And when that happens, you die. And when that happens, you die. And one of the most dangerous things for us as it comes to the gospel is that, is that we're working with the things of God all the time. We're working with this gospel all the time. And the danger is that it ceases to become that living, active word of God. It ceases to become the power of God unto salvation. It ceases to be the broken body and the shed blood and it's just a little piece of bread and grape juice and it's not a means of grace. It ceases to be transforming and you die. And how many people in ministry that you know have died, have bit it, have just reached out, just saved God, fixed God, protected God, helped God, but they had God in a box. And God was no longer the powerful God of Israel. He was a myth that existed in a box and you could do whatever you wanted with them. And God kills them. And everybody wakes up real quick. Like, whoa. Well, that, that isn't just a box, is it? And we wonder why God puts churches to sleep. We wonder why he snuffs out candles. We wonder why he takes away ministries. Because he's dangerous. And you have made him nice. He is untamed, and we have domesticated him. He is bold and scary, and he kills people. And we made him polite. We made him nice and sweet and cuddly. And you wonder why your kids grow up and they don't care. Right? They don't care. The cross of Christ is not there to make us nice people. It's there to kill us and resurrect us. It's there to make us a dangerous, living, sacrificial people of God who would worship so boldly that we would never dare think to reach out and touch it. We would never dare think there's a better way to do this besides the prayer and preaching and giving your life away. And when you put God in a box, and when the gospel ceases to become real to you, to us, we're dead. It might not be a dramatic scene like this, but it's a slow drift. Well, King David in verse 12 is told that the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went again to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now listen to this. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord 
had taken six steps. He sacrificed the bull and a fatted calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord and shouts and the sound of trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from the window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And, the, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside the tent of David, had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he gave them a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person. And the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. They went back and they said, uh, we should probably open the book and figure out how this is supposed to go. We should probably open the book and figure out who this God is. But what David represents to us is this is the picture of someone who is preaching the gospel to themselves. We know how kings in, in this, t this time entered a city. right? They would be carried in. There would be huge procession. Uh, there would be people dancing in front of them. The army would be around them. And they would be sitting on their throne. And when the ark of God comes into Jerusalem, David wants to be the dancer, the lead worshiper. Not the one sitting on the throne, because in his heart of hearts, he wants God to be king over his people. He wants God to be who he is and God to be in his rightful place. So he's the worship leader. And this is worship that is humble. He's stripped down. He's not holding up any sense of royalty. McCall sees it. McCall is raised by a king, Saul. She's embarrassed of David because he's so humiliated himself. It's sacrificial. This is slow work. Six steps sacrifice six steps sacrifice for a long ways David danced with all his might as he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of God when you think about leading a congregation into the gospel it is imperative for us that that gospel is first preach to us, that we are the lead worshipers, that we don't look out at a world or even a congregation and think that we somehow are better than them or we got more figured out than them, but we would understand that we have solidarity with them at the cross and the only way to lead into mission is to first lead into worship and if your church is not on mission, you have a worship problem. You don't have a mission problem. You have a worship problem. Because worship always results in giving your life away to others. It always results in a generous life, in a sacrificial life. That as you love God, 
you will in turn love others. And one of the ways we deceive ourselves is by suggesting that we have worship figured out, but mission is just this weird little component that we just haven't quite unlocked the key to. And the reason we're not reaching lost people is because we don't want to, not because we don't know how to. It's because we're just as sinful of the, as them, and we need the love of God to change our hearts. And that happens in worship. That happens in worship. Right? We're not good people. We're not nice people. How did our theology get so jacked up that we get saved and then we become ethical humanists? It's like everyone in my church would reach the lost, but they just don't get it yet. They don't know how. Jesus said, love your neighbor, and that's so confusing, and we don't know who our neighbor is or where. I mean, it's really challenging. So this is going to take me some time, but I got Bible study, and I got a worship thing, and I love that. If you worship right, you end up in mission. It's the bottom line. So there's no weird sniff test that we have to pass. And for David, as the king of Israel... He puts himself in his proper place as the leader, stripped down, humble, sacrificial, saying, I'm going to lead by being the dancer before the Lord. I'm going to be the one that's worshiping with all his might. And the people will be blessed by the overflow of my life. The overflow of my life. Uzzah's dead. And worship for him wasn't alive, it wasn't active, it was God in a box. And David's dancing. Now there's one more figure, and there's this McCall, his wife, and she sits up there, up in the balcony, and she's looking down, and she's missing the whole thing. God's coming to town. God has, is going to be in the middle of the city. This is, this is what we waited for from the time of Joshua to the time of David. That's Stephen says that in Acts 7. The land is fully ours now. The kingdom is here and God is going to be in the middle of the city and McCall misses the whole thing. Because she's standing up and she's criticizing, she's evaluating, is he being kingly enough? He's embarrassing himself. That's not how a king acts. And she misses God. She misses God. And says in verse 20, When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going out to going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. And David said to McCall, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone in his house whom he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And McCall, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So McCall is barren. God comes to town. David leads the procession as the humble slave worshiper of Yahweh. 
and she misses the whole thing as she criticizes and evaluates and decides whether he's doing it right or wrong. And she's barren, fruitless. And how many of us, if we're not Uzzah, are McCall? We have figured out our doctrine. We know who's suspect. We know who to read, not to read. We know who to tell our youth pastor not to read for sure, right? We, we got all of it figured out, but we have no fruit in our lives. We, we have everything evaluated to make sure that we're right and they're wrong, and that we will remain right. And we have Jesus, and we have him hidden in the basement. We're protecting him, because if he gets out, who knows what they'll do to him. Right? And so if you want to see Jesus come to our church, he's in the basement. We're, we're hiding him. And you're fruit, we're fruitless. We're barren. We know what happens when we quit protecting Jesus and start proclaiming Jesus. Right? That's what we're called to do. He never said, protect me. He's on a cross, clearly. We killed him. But you can't kill him again. Because he's resurrected and overcome the grave. And he's supposed to be the conversation in the public square. But we're worried that we might pervert his glory if we communicate to the world that he loves them. And if you're worried about that, then you're on the verge of heresy. Because God loves the world. Right? And we look out at anyone that's dancing, and we're like, mm, I don't know. I don't know, they're, they're shaking it a little too much, really, for me. And we miss it. And we miss it. And we wonder why we're not baptizing people, planting new churches, reaching the lost. Why hasn't that happened? Because we're barren. So, three characters... McCall, barren, critical, evaluative, fruitless. Uzzah, dead, God in the box, a gospel that no longer is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus, who is no longer hope of the world. And David, David, who despite titles, despite position, despite authority, is stripped down to his primary identity as a worshiper. As a worshiper. And the only way we get there is if the gospel is good news for us every single day. Amen. So if the team, uh, Rick and your team, would uh, Scott and Nick would come up and, and share with us, uh, we're going to be looking at Acts 1-8. Thanks for that, Rick. I thought I ought to dance. <laughs> I'm Rick Harpel from uh, Yakima, and we're out on the fringes out there. 
in the oasis, uh, the high desert central of Washington. Um, Yakima is a community of about 100,000, 120,000. It's rural, it's urban, it's suburban, so it covers just about uh, everything out there. And what we want to do is tell you a little bit of a story about being on mission uh, for about the last 15 years and just what God has done uh, with us. Picture a 50-year-old pastor and a 50-year-old church. That's where you start. Now, I don't know about you, but at 50, I've begun to notice that everything moves down and in. Right? It just kind of gravity sort of takes over. That's true in a church, too. And those who've been around the church know that. that after 50 years, that's just a cycle. You, you move down and, and the arrows start pointing in. And when I came to Westside, Westside was a strong church. Westside had an, a phenomenal history, a past, had done amazing things. But as Mark told us last night, that, there, there's no guarantee of the future. Just because God's done something in the past, it doesn't mean it's automatically going to happen. And there was in me and in our church a sense of brokenness. Uh, we'd been through some hard times. And I asked a question <laughs> uh, that Rick raised. Uh, how did David go from the first party to the second one? The first parade to the second one. He was devastated after his death. How did he get to where he was dancing? After the brokenness. When you feel that sense of despair and urgency. And what we discovered as a church, what I discovered in me preaching that passage to myself, was the second parade was God's parade. It wasn't David's parade. And that's what we wanted to do as a church. We don't want to just do what we've always done with God in the box. As a church, we, we had a sense of urgency and desperation. What are we going to do now that's God's parade, following Him and doing what He wants us to do for this next generation? So we got busy. And we went to the scripture and said, the Lord, teach us, how do we embrace the mission for the next generation? We want your party. We want your parade. We want to do what you want us to do. Well, if you remember 15 years ago, the big controversy was, well, is the church all about them or us? Is it seeker-sensitive or is it the believer? Uh, is it for those who are not here yet or is it for those that are here? Is it evangelism or is it discipleship? And we were fighting over that. And we all realized eventually that it's both. <laughs> it's both. It's evangelism and it's discipleship. And so we went to the book of Acts and we just looked at what, what's happening there. And you remember the story in Acts chapter 4 where uh, Peter and John, they get out of prison. What's the first thing that they do? They, they, they're getting out. The Sanhedrin's let them go. They go back to the fellowship. And they go back to that fellowship in verse uh, 23, 24. And they have, a, they have a worship service. And they praise God. And the sovereign God, they start praying. What's amazing is what they say at the very end of that uh, little worship service that they have. Verse 31, they say, Now, Lord, after all this, consider their threats and enable your servants to hunker down and keep us safe and protect us and separate us off from these terrible things. No, that's not what it says. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand, heal, perform miracles, signs, and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. They, they basically said, oh, Lord, send us back out. And so we saw very clearly, there's the you, you, you go out there, and you come back into the church, you build up one another, you build up mature disciples, and you go back out. 
And you speak it again, and you bring more people in, you build them up, and make them mature, and then you send them out. And they bring more people back in, you build them up, send them out. And so we wrote our mission statement, like many of yours. Building mature disciples to reach their world for Christ. That's the strategy. You build a mature disciple, and you're going to reach our world for Christ. That's the message that Royce talked about last night. It doesn't change. So we lumbered along with that for a while. And then we were taught, and we learned something. Both things are necessary. Mature disciples reaching your world for Christ. But we began to see as we lumbered along that one is more equal than the other. <laughs> Discipleship is like gravity. It's always there. In a church, 50 years old, it kind of just happens. It doesn't always happen well. But discipleship happens. You take care of one another. You build one another up. And after a while, if you say that you're building a mature disciple to reach their will for Christ, after a while, it's like kind of kicking that second one down the road a little bit. Sometimes you never get to the point where you're actually uh, reaching your world for Christ. If, if discipleship is gravity, evangelism is like the airplane. And you put all your energy, you put the jet fuel and the engineering into getting that thing off the ground. That's where you put the energy. And so we realized we had our mission statement backwards and we literally turned it around. Instead of building mature disciples to reach our world for Christ, we said, let's reach our world for Christ by building mature disciples. Let's put the priority on getting out there. Arrows out. Because everything's moving in. And it sounds like that's just maybe a cosmetic thing that you put on your you know, mission statement on the wall. But it's really more than that, more than just the letterhead. It became kind of the tip of the iceberg. Then everything we began to do was with that priority first. We're going to do discipleship, but we want people to multiply. That's why we embraced Acts 1.8. We've got to get everybody out there at every level, every concentric circle, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And so we embraced multiplication. We want everybody to be multiplying. That's what we began to preach over and over again. Believers need to multiply believers. Workers need to multiply workers. Uh, pastors need to multiply pastors. Leaders need to multiply leaders. Churches need to multiply churches. We want to be multiplication. That's what gets it going. That's what needs to be out in front of people. And so that was the call that was upon us uh, to be able to do that. How do you get the Acts 1-8 multiplication mission into the people? Uh, especially the church that's been around for 50 years. Well, I'm going to introduce uh, Scott Thielen. He's our pastor of discipleship. And I want him to answer that question. How do you get it into the people so that they understand multiplication uh, ministry? Scott. So if you just heard Rick carefully, I'm pastor of gravity, actually. <laughs> that's my, my role. Uh, in a word, if there's a value that we could associate with this issue, I would say it's the word intentionality. Things that are great don't happen by accident. Jesus didn't pick the 12, he picked by accident. There's an intentionality about what we have to do. And so with that in mind, I want to share three specific ways that we chose to be intentional about applying the Acts 1-8 model um, in the function of the church. The first is we changed our priorities. And what that meant for us is we began to shift the focus away from simply building believers, as Rick mentioned, to really focusing on the people who are coming in the front door. They needed to have the emphasis. It didn't mean we didn't care about everybody else, but we began to put intentionality into the things that we did with them. We wanted everyone who came in the front door to feel like they had an opportunity to connect relationally. We began to value that more and more. We, you know, A lot of times we put out coffee and, and goodies and that kind of thing, but you've got to have more than that. You've got to have people that really want to use that environment to reach out and to invite, and we've been working on that. It's been great. Um, we also wanted to intentionally create a climate of authenticity. 
where where people really felt they could talk to one another. They could talk to us. We were approachable, and uh, we worked really hard on that. People hear that uh, that Westside is a safe place where you can come and you can explore faith and you can experience community with people. And we wanted that, and because of that intentionality, we're beginning to see that fruit, and it's very very encouraging. And and ultimately, we began to teach that vision with everybody who came in the front door. So from the very outset, we teach Acts 1-8. We model this and we explain it and we challenge people to have that mentality as they uh, jump into the church's life. Um, we also created a process, which we call the Discipleship Pathway. Um, we admitted that people had no sense of direction when they came into the church. Uh, they needed to see that the body of Christ was more than, than just what it might appear, that there were uh, deeper things going on. The result of that was defining a pathway, a process, with many entry doors. Um, I liken this to going to the airport. You go to the airport terminal and you, you see many gates going to many different planes. Our job as a church is, is let's find a way to help people find the gate they need to get to that's at the right place for them. What they don't know is that all the planes go to the same destination. The mission drives how we execute it, but we want to help them find their, their entry point, And we have many ways for them to do that. So the discipleship pathway is a way of saying, if, if we take somebody from the very beginning, we want to have a vision uh, and, and a development of that vision that begins with the idea that all people have the potential to be brought to maturity. That some of those can be called to leadership. That some of those can be called to eldership. That some of those can be called to full-time vocational ministry. But there's an intentionality about that expectation. We want that to drive the decisions we're making. This has meant many years of developing that process and uh, we haven't arrived. We're still learning how to do that. So um, it's, it's, it's been an interesting experience. But we want everyone to have that opportunity to take their next step in spiritual growth. And then we've called mature believers to proximity. And what I mean by that is, is we want to help uh, by challenging people who are established in their faith to not miss what real mission is like, living out your discipleship. It's getting close to someone who isn't there. It's spending time with them. And when you do that, you begin to learn how you can serve more effectively. We shifted that focus from inward to outward uh, by challenging them to see their role differently. Rather than focusing on what we know, focusing on doing something with what we know. And I know that sounds subtle, but that is a, that's a huge challenge. And obviously not everybody's on board with that. But those who are, those who have engaged, are beginning to find out that uh, God is stretching them in ways they never thought possible. And they're going deep. Um, we started something this last fall called Starting Point, which is a, uh, an idea that was generated at North Point Church back in Atlanta. Uh, it's creating conversational environments where we can help people explore faith and experience community. And just since September, we are launching our fifth group. And, and these are people that we did not ever have in our sights. I mean, these are not people that we went out and sought. God brought them to us. And it is so exciting to see them in an opportunity to have that kind of authentic uh, environment where they can ask honest questions. Where do you go to ask that kind of stuff? And so we've created that opportunity and God is blessing that. Uh, we want to encourage those who are mature though in their faith to wade out into the deep end of the pool and uh, trust God and see what will happen. We know that the Acts 1-8 model uh, takes us to um, Christ's likeness. We want, to, we want to be involved in developing that and encouraging people. We've defined a process. I guess the, the key is for us is to just understand that it doesn't matter where anybody is. We just want to help them take their next step in their growth. So if you've, got, if you've got the urgency and people feel a sense of desperation, and you do as a pastor, 
And if you understand that multiplication, Acts 1-8, is really where you're driving, and that's what you're going to promote and get people discipled towards that. And you're very intentional about taking them step by step from the first time they walk in the door to that. What does it look like when it happens? Now, uh, Pastor Nick Natalie has joined our staff and is really kind of an outworking of that change in mission. Everybody in our church, when we were looking to, to add to staff, wanted a pastoral care pastor so that we could take care of ourselves and because we, we have problems and we need to take care of ourselves. We decided, no, before we hire that person, that's important, we want to hire a pastor of outreach because we want to keep that the priority. So Nick joined our staff as our pastor of outreach, and I'm going to ask him to talk just a little bit about what it looks like when Acts 1-8 sort of hits uh, the community. Nick? You know, Rick, as soon as you step outside the walls of your church, it becomes messy. You begin dealing with people that aren't like who you are inside the church. It's risky, and sometimes it can be chaotic. We're in one of those times right now in Yakima. But we see it as our mission to begin to mobilize people, God's people, for His mission. So that means that uh, in some way, in some fashion, we want to move them from being able to see themselves and involved in the church from an event to a form of missional living how they move them from just simply attending and exposing community outreach or something of that nature to all of a sudden, I want to do this as part of my life. I want to bring my family involved in I want to bring my neighbors involved in even those who are not Christ followers yet, so we can work together for the transformation of our community. But over some point, it becomes not just events, it becomes missional living, and that's important. Now we see this working out in our church in many different ways and uh, it's not all applicable to where you live but this is kind of our connectedness here in Yakima. We have been able to plant two churches out of Westside and those have been pretty much under the daughter church model. We take 100 people, 80 people from our congregation, we place them over here and we begin a church and begin to grow. They have seen huge amounts of success. And it's amazing as we approach Easter, we're going to know there'll be more people celebrating our Lord's resurrection because of the church planting rather than if we have just tried to grab them and brought them into our building and we're going to grow as much as our building can grow or our building can hold. But uh, as we have been able to plant more, um, we have also seen some of the Lord begin to entrust us with people in our congregation that are not like us where we were planting churches very much as a near-near, as we looked at last night, all of a sudden people began to fill those seats, those people exited with others who are a different culture from us, mainly from the poverty culture around uh, Yakima. And so we have now an occurrence of a near-far. They're near us in distance. They live five or six miles down the road from us, but in culture they're distance. We are not exactly sure. And this is when it becomes messy. and becomes chaotic at times. But uh, Pastor Scott has been able to develop uh, wonderful ways to be, uh, begin to communicate and connect them with people. And we have seen our church do amazing things of allowing the others to come in, embracing out of worship, as Rick has been saying, the, the need for us to live life with each other. And that means all of us who are now in this room so we can go out together. We also have to be flexible because flexibility is the name of the game when it comes to, to uh, reaching our world for Christ by building mature disciples. 
We are no longer being able just to do the things the way we've been wanting to do them. We have to go where the Lord leads us. And it's been amazing for us to see how our church has responded to the need in Othello. Othello is about an hour and a half from us um, in deeper in central Washington. And we are become aware that there are Mesteco Indians, indigenous uh, natives from Mexico who are living there now. And they have uh, been there for about 10 years, but there's not a strong work among them. The scriptures are not even in their language yet. So where we have the book of John and, and John 1, 2, and 3 in their language and the book of James, that's all the scriptures that's in their language. And we get to the point where we just can't ignore them. They need food. They need blankets. They need the scripture. They need teaching. So where we were looking at uh, maybe a fourth, fifth plant being right next door to us, now we're saying, no, we can't ignore this. We must get the scriptures in the church in Othello. Flexible. It just wasn't one on our radar. But we can't ignore what the God is showing us. So we must move. And uh, it's been simply amazing. So we begin to think about, you know, what does it mean to be flexible in that regard? And it's, it's, it's important. It's an important value. Thanks, Nick. And we were joking earlier. It wasn't a joke. We had a transvestite come to church on Sunday, a cross-dressing guy named Michelle. That was interesting. <laughs> you know, that was an amazing experience to be able to see God bring different kinds of folks in. in. And so if you've, got, if you've got urgency, if you've got multiplication in front of you, Acts 1-8, if you've got some intentionality and then you're really willing to be flexible, uh, God can move you forward. I want to leave you with a phrase that God has given to us in this whole process. The point of all hearing all this is not that you're going to be able to do exactly what we did. We can't even do exactly what we did. We got, we got to be flexible. We got to find what God calls us to do. But we got to do what God wants you to do. Whether it's your next church plant or whatever it looks like or whoever God has put in your backyard or whoever walks into your front door, you can't, you can't not do that. And I want to leave you with this phrase. When we planted our first church, I came to this conference a number of years ago, and somebody came up to me and said, how did you deal with all the opposition to that in your church? You know, taking, a, taking 100 people and $100,000 and cutting off an arm and sending them over there. How did you deal with the opposition? I was stunned by the question. Because there wasn't any opposition. There wasn't any opposition. And I thought about that for a minute, and I thought, I can't take any credit for that. <laughs> Because I didn't have a scheme to not have opposition in a 50-year-old church. But what I realized had happened is that the people had come to a point where they said, we can't not do this. Not we can't do it, or we can do it. We can't not do this. Reach out to an unreached people group in our backyard. We can't not do that. Train leaders intentionally. We can't not do that. Plan another church. We can't not do that. There was a sense of urgency that the Holy Spirit had given to our people. And my prayer for you would be that God would give you that. Pray for that. Pray for the Spirit to give you and your people a can't-not-do-that urgency for the gospel message and for the people that He has brought to your door and the people that He will send you to constantly. I'm now 55, and, and the church is 59, and I'm still feeling the down and in. I, I have to pray for myself that God would give me and each of our staff and each of our people, we can't not do this for Christ, that sense of urgency to multiply the kingdom. So we encourage you and we're delighted to hear what you're doing and thank you for the opportunity to share these principles.
thinking of God's sovereignty and how he, uh, he has worked through the years. Uh, Bonnie and I were at Westside for, for many years, had a good ministry there. The last year was a very difficult, painful uh, transition year. Uh, we left with some uh, wounds and hurts that took probably two years to heal up. But God brought uh, Pastor Rick in uh, to help bring peace and to help bring reconciliation. And then to bring this outward focus, and it's just been exciting to hear how God has blessed at uh, Westside in Yakima. Uh, when we left Yakima, we said, God, we have no idea where you want us to go next. A search committee had been formulated where Scott's dad, uh, Pastor Thielen uh, Kent, was in, in LaGrand. He had just resigned. A search committee had been formulated. And uh, they came asking about us. And we happened at that point to be just resigning in Yakima. And so we ended up in LaGrand. Well, Scott's dad had hired Rick McKinley, who was a youth pastor there in LeGrand uh, when we arrived. Our daughter was a senior in high school, and we were concerned about her, how she'd make the transition. And God had uh, Rick there to be able to help with all of that. And uh, so exciting times. I remember, uh, I remember the first time that I took Rick to the auction barn. And he had never been to an auction barn before. And so it was a cross-cultural experience for him. We, uh, we sat in the auction barn for a while and uh, experienced that. And then we got in the truck and we were driving away. And I was talking a little bit about my dad. And uh, I, I referred to AI. And uh, Rick kind of had this puzzled look. And he said, now, what's AI? And I said, well, that's artificial insemination. And uh, he looked at me and he said, what? And, uh, so that was another education that we had to go through a little bit. But Rick had a burden laid upon his heart to want to come and start a church in, uh, in Portland, and, uh, and God bless that. I want to show you a picture of an of a early church planter. Many of you have been around for, for a long time. will remember uh, this, first, this first slide here. This is uh, Harold MacArthur. This is Paul MacArthur's father. Uh, Paul ministering in Alaska, but uh, Harold was planting a church in Halfway, Oregon when uh, uh, Bonnie and I went to Enterprise, and I became the pastor at, at Enterprise, uh, just over the Willow Mountains uh, away. Harold had also started a church in Stanfield, and I think he started some other churches, so he's an early church planter. But uh, he ex uh, experienced ranch life in Prineville, growing up in Prineville, and so he had this background. And so there you can see he's holding his Bible, and he's on his horse, and this is, uh, this is Harold's saddle right here that... Uh, uh, his daughter was able to uh, loan to me so I could bring it as an illustration of uh, how Harold used his background to touch the hearts of people that he had just an instant rapport with because of what he had experienced in his own upbringing. And God used that to help get those churches going uh, in those out-of-the-way out places. Uh, what we did uh, with Harold is... Um, he came up, I think he came up with the idea and said, why don't we do a pulpit exchange? Uh, I'll ride from halfway. We'll meet you halfway up in the Wallowa Mountains. You come from Enterprise. So Bonnie and I, we saddled up and we rode 30, 25 or 30 miles in, camped with Harold overnight. Then he went and preached in Enterprise and I went and preached in halfway. And, but there was something that was happening, even when that went into the newspaper, it was saying something to the communities in which we live about trying to build a relationship uh, with them. Uh, I'm talking about sometimes what can be around us, but somewhat neglected. I'm talking about livestock-oriented families, 4-H kind of families, FFA kind of families, rodeo people, horses, uh, cows, uh, wheat ranchers. 
John Wayne kind of people that just kind of like the Western heritage. And in some places you'll be able to identify with this, in other places you say, this, this does, doesn't relate to me at all. But I think the principles will because the Apostle Paul, as a church planter, said that there is something about studying the worlds in which we live and the cultures around us and then becoming all things to all men. For this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. I've made myself a slave to all. To the Jews I became as a Jew. To those under the law as one that is under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. To those who are weak I became weak. I have become all things to all people. Why was Paul willing to sacrifice his own personal preferences in order to serve other people by becoming like they were, to incarnate himself into their lives and to, uh, and to serve them, uh, even though the cultural differences uh, might have been uh, great at that time. He made clear what his motives were. In the same text he says, why become as they are? so that I might win more of them, that I might win Jews, that I might win those under the law, that I might win those outside the law, that I might win the weak, that I might by all means save some. He became as they were in order that they might become as he was, ultimately to lead them to the Lord, to save them. Uh, this is an important part of evangelism strategy. and. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about my story and, and, and the burden that's on my, my heart now. The next picture that you'll see is a picture of uh, the home place where my mom and dad uh, lived for over 40 years now. And uh, in the state of Texas is where I grew up. This is a Texas hill country, not far from San Antonio, up in the hill country area. That's an old German farmhouse that was built in 1900. And uh, so when the, we'd served in Legrand for 10 years, they gave us a sabbatical uh, for three months. And I told Bon, let's uh, hook up the RV, take the truck, and go to Texas and spend the winter in Texas. So <clears throat> this is where we spent, spent our time while we were there. And uh, <clears throat> uh, it was really a special time because we were getting to that age now where we're thinking, what's the last chapter of our ministry lives would look like? We started in Enterprise, then we went to Yakima, and now we're in Legrand, three different chapters. But what would the last chapter look like? This next picture is a picture of my dad while we were there. Dad was almost 85 years old in this picture. And uh, he'd make a good poster boy for don't mess with Texas uh, as he carries those two 30-30 uh, rifles. But it tells you a little bit about what God birthed me into and what I experienced in growing up that also is part of the fabric of who I am that may help me to be able to have rapport and reach people uh, that have similar kind of cultural experiences. So I don't believe that that was by accident. While we were there uh, that winter, we drove down to Divine, Texas. I had met a friend at a Sproul conference in Florida. I looked around. And he was the only guy that was wearing Wrangler jeans. And I said, i got to meet that fellow. So I talked with him. And he was starting a church down in Divine, Texas, out behind a cotton gin in an open-air shed. So this next picture you'll see this is where the church meets. And uh, by that time, they had almost 200 people that were meeting in that shed. And they called it a cowboy fellowship, uh, the Cowboy Church of Medina County. But he said, if I had to name it over again, I wouldn't put cowboy on it because I'd say maybe country or something like that. They're people that appreciate the Western heritage, but very few of them were ranchers or farmers. But uh, they were people that were comfortable coming into this kind of a setting 
and being able to uh, dress the way they were and not feel like they had to dress up. If they had a little manure on their boots, that would be acceptable. Nobody would even think about it or see it. And so, as a result, they were reaching a lot of people. And what I found out is the Southern Baptists in the state of Texas are planting these cowboy fellowships like crazy. I think there's over 200 Southern Baptist churches that have now planted cowboy churches in the state of Texas. And what they're discovering is there's a whole neglected group of people that we haven't been speaking their language. And so they are baptizing far more people in those country fellowships than they are in their traditional uh, Baptist churches. And then of those that are being baptized, almost 80% of them are adults. And of those 80% adults that are being baptized, 80% of those are men. Men that have never darkened the door of a church. That more than likely you would never get them to come to what looks like a traditional church. But as we saw that and heard that and experienced it down there, God began to de uh, develop a burden in my heart. And I told Bonnie, I said, you know, um, I just feel like the last chapter of our life, if there's any way, I'd like to focus in on people that I just have instant rapport with and have a burden for. So the next picture is a picture of the valley that we live in, the Grand Ronde Valley. And so we did some demographic study and found out there's 1,200, 500 people that live inside the city of LaGrande with Eastern Oregon University and uh, a different kind of city life inside the town. But there's 12,500 people that live in the county that are very much a different tribe, a different ethne, and it's, uh, there's quite a contrast between the two. So we're at the point now where we have to start a second service, uh, and we were thinking, why do a duplicate service in the auditorium exactly the same, reaching the same target audience, why not go off campus and start a second service that would target the 12,500 people in the valley that are a little different than the city people? So we began to pray about that as elders and talk about it as a church. And we're still in the praying and talking stages. And uh, uh, Rick mentioned that uh, all the people were ready and the bulk of the people are. But some are a little bit skeptical about this whole idea of maybe a target group different than what we've been doing. Um, so this is what God began to do. I began to pray about it. We came home with this burden. This has been about four years ago now, so it's been a patient process. And then I had a rancher friend that said, uh, listen, I found a horse that is a free horse. And so uh, he gave, uh, gave me this horse. And my wife said, there is no such thing as a free horse. <laughs> and uh, that, that is true. There are some expenses that go along with it. But she's about an eight-year-old now, and she is a gym dandy. And uh, it brings me back to my Texas route to be able to come home uh, in the afternoon and after work at the office and be able to get on a horse and go for a ride. So I started helping with uh, uh, my friend who helped line this out for me. And uh, I, I, let me just tell you this. You may think, well, Texas, you're a real cowboy. That's not true. I'm mostly a wannabe cowboy. But what I found is, if you're a wannabe, wherever God's planted you, and you hang out with cowboys, and if you're humble enough to be taught and show an interest in becoming like them, they will bend over backwards trying to take a greenhorn and turn you into a cowboy. If you just value what they value and love what they love, and love on them. So that's part of what God's been doing. Let me show you. This is my friend. Uh, my friend's name is Bob. And uh, he's got lots of friends that he invites to help with roundups. And so we were 
gathered together. And if you think that's a Coke in his hand, it's not a Coke. Uh, there'd probably be, that's, that's a bottle, a can of beer. And in the back pocket, he might have a thing of whiskey. Um, and so we started out together and we built a friendship. Uh, there's not a person there in, the, in that group that uh, uh, goes to, are church-going people. And if you can even look at this, you can say, does that look like a little bit of a different tribe than maybe what you're used to? It is. It's a different language. It's a different culture. But I believe they're a neglected group in our area, and there's lots of them. And so we started doing brandings together and roundups together and built a relationship. Bob and Sandy have come to church a few times now with me. I remember one time we were doing a branding, and... Uh, we had a cow that jumped, out of, jumped over the top of a pen, went out. In fact, uh, anyway, Bob got a little upset, and I mean, he cussed a whole bunch of us out. I mean, just blue streak, one from the other, and I'm sitting there as a preacher thinking, man, doesn't he know I'm a preacher? He shouldn't be talking to me like that. <laughs> and uh, the last branding that we had uh, this last time, <clears throat> we had a cow jump three fences and, and got completely out, was headed out into the pasture afterwards. Not one cuss word came out of Bob's mouth this year. The Spirit of God is working on Bob and Sandy, and I think it possible he's already accepted Christ, but we just haven't had a chance to hear him confess that or be baptized yet. Uh, these are country folks that are being neglected. So we started brainstorming and saying, God, what would be a good location? And this is the building that we are considering. It's still available right now. It's between the Flying J truck stop and the auction barn where I took Rick, and it's right on the main road. And uh, it looks very un in, uh, intimidating to country kind of people. And so we're hoping that this might be a possibility if we, uh, if we go ahead as a church. Inside the building, it looks something like this. Uh, this is where we would hold our, uh, our a worship service inside this area. And uh, so if you can imagine a country gospel kind of uh, band a worship band in, in that setting, maybe some bluegrass kind of flavor to it. And uh, we'd be sitting on either lawn chairs or patio chairs uh, there. If when you walk in, there'd be saddles used for decoration and ropes and hats on the wall and Western art and, and photographs so that when they walk in, they're, they're feeling very comfortable with uh, who they are as we try to reach out to them. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that our church will... Uh, completely embraced the idea of becoming a mother. We were thinking, just start a second service, do two services. I preach both. And in a transition time, that may be the best way. But the elders are thinking now, uh, we really believe that ultimately this needs to be a church plant and it would be self-sustaining and have its own identity. And so at this age, Bonnie and I are looking at becoming possible church planters in the next couple of years if God should lead us this way and the church should endorse it to go forward. And I hope and pray that they will. This whole country idea may not relate to you or to your world where you are, but Paul's strategy is a good one because it involves becoming as people are, loving on them, serving them, seeking them, those on the outside. What kind of tribes, what kind of ethnies are around us? I think that's the whole point of why we're gathered here and saying, God, place a burden, helps to love these people and try to reach them for Christ. Uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and even Samaria, become as they are, that they might become as we are. Incarnate the gospel into their lives. Um, a few months ago, our daughter wrote a poem and sent it to us, and I thought I'd like to end with that this morning. Uh, she's living over in, in the Bend area now. 
And Rick, I want to publicly thank you for uh, loving our daughter and helping her in those transition years of her life, too. She entitled it, I Want. I want to be around lots of people who have not decided to believe in God yet, and then I want to be able to speak clearly and frankly and boldly with them about all the things that truly matter. Life, love, Jesus, creation, death, life after death, where things have come from, where we are going, and anything else on their hearts and minds. I want, I want to see people feel and taste the trueness of God for the first time. To be near them while God pursues them and becomes real in their life for the first time. To welcome them into new life. Welcome them into purpose, meaning, hope, security. Welcome them into a new family as well. I want to throw a party for them. I want to tell them that the road uh, will not be easy, but they've chosen the best road. That their fight has been fought, their rest will, be, will come through repentance, and that I look forward to spending eternity with them along with all the others who have chosen to surrender to God as their Savior and friend. I want this to be every day, and then I will die and not be dead. I pray that God would lay this burden on all of our hearts and that he would bring these dreams to fruition as we try to reach people for Christ. Thank you.